Well, welcome to Grace and Peace. Over the, yeah, thank you, Martin. Over the next uh, five weeks, we're going to be talking about the values of Grace and Peace. What is this church about? What do we stand for? And so if you hang out with us over the next few weeks, you're going to find out. And what are these values? One is that we are a church centered on the gospel. Two, that we want to exhibit authentic unity. Three, that we care about city engagement, being involved in the place that we live. Next, we engage in discipleship with Monday in mind. So we don't just come here on Sunday just to worship, to hang out, have a good time, and then go back and go, go about our Monday routine. No, what happens here is to form and shape you as a person so that you would go into the world and be the type of person that God desires to show forth his, his uh, character, his love, and his care for the world. And lastly, we talk about humility on the journey. You and I, we are limited human beings, and we don't have it all together. And we're honest about that. We're honest about that. And so today we're going to start off with the gospel. Uh, the word gospel is a, it is a weird word. I don't know how often we use it or think about it. But it is a word that means good news. It is from a Greek word, euangelion. And you're like, thanks for the Greek lesson this early in the morning. Uh, we'll skip that. Uh, good news is kind of what the, the legend of Marathon started off with. The herald or the euangelion, this guy, took with him from whenever they found out they won a huge victory. The city was spared. Life can go on. We're no longer going to die. And so the legend says that this man ran 26 miles or so, you know, 25 miles. And he ran with this good news, such good news, life-changing news, that he went to a place and there he, he proclaimed the good news and died. First off, Homie needs to eat a little better. That, that might have been the problem why he died. But he runs 26 miles with his good news. Why in the world? Like, if it was just good advice or, you know, uh, the, the Red Sox won the World Series, I don't know if anyone would run to go and say, like, hey, the Red Sox won the World Series. No. Rather, what was happening was that there was life-changing news. It was good news. It reminds me of this, uh, it's probably an apocryphal story that happened during the French Revolution. Two men go into prison. Uh, one man hears that his entire family, he receives bad news, and his entire family uh, is going to uh, leave, and there's no one going to be there with him for when he gets out. But then another man's wife comes to him and says, I am with child, and I will wait for you every day. It was life-changing news. He's going into prison, but these two men, the one man who received the bad news, died and didn't make it all the way through his sentence, whereas the other man, waiting in joyful expectation because of the good news that he had, lasted to the end. And so Christians, though, we believe that in the life, death, and resurrection, something cataclysmically has happened to the world, to time itself, that has changed everything we know about this world. 
Everything has changed. This is good news. So starting in the book of Genesis, the Bible is about this gospel, this good news that they're searching for. Genesis starts off with God creating all things good, and it was wonderful, and he created people that were lovely and wonderful to reflect his character into the world, to fill the world with his image bearers. But that isn't the way it continues, does it? No, they're, uh, the Adam and Eve are tricked by the serpent, by Satan, and they go and say they distrust God. They believe that they can be good without God, that they can have a good life without him. And then they eat of the fruit, they rebel against God, and poison enters their heart. And so from there, our default mode has always been to try to be good without God, to try to be moral without God to have order without God, to put things right without God, to be approved and validated in this world without God. And that is the poison in all of our hearts. And when we come to this text, when we come to this text, it, it is well known. We have seen it many times. And I think it's, it's really important for us to see this. Uh, the at, at the time, Israel and in Jerusalem, they were under Roman captivity. You're like, oh, great. He's given us a Greek lesson. Now he's given us a history lesson. Sweet. Thanks, man. Um, so they're under Roman captivity. They are believing that, that they have done something wrong before God and that they have to do something right in order to get these dirty Romans out. They're occupied by a bunch of pagans, they believe, and that they need to kick out these Romans. And the way to do that, the Pharisees and the scribes believed that if they were good people, if they kept the law, if they followed God's rules, if they didn't drink, chew, or go with girls who do, that God would visit them and reward them. And that they would be shown as these are my real people. And so they, they thought morality was going to rescue them. But what this shows is that it is not morality that rescues them. It is God and God alone who rescues them. And in fact, he says that the condition isn't just your moral ca- uh, capability. So the problem with you and I is not that we have just done bad. If it was just that we have done bad, it would be like you know bringing a report card home to your parents and saying, I got a D, mom. And your mom's like, you better shape up. You know, that's what you do. You shape up, right? You bring home that A and be like, boom, approved. That's what A stands for. (laughs) Shown you, mom. But that's not the problem. And in the text, the father says, this son of mine was dead. Flatlined. And we mean like dead, dead. Like he's dead, you know. Not just like dead to me, but he was like worthless. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't make himself approvable. He wasn't going to work his way out of it. So, no, Christianity is not a new way to be moral. No, it is as C.S. Lewis said, it is not to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. That's what Christianity is about. That's what the gospel, the good news is about. I grew up in in an age where I just believed that that, uh, um, Christianity or any religion existed primarily just to make you moral. It was to help society go forward by making people moral so that they can live together in societies and different things like that. There is really no real basis for it. Change my mind later. 
Uh, another person who had this view, though, was a writer named Anne Rice. If you've uh, ever seen the movie uh, Interview with a Vampire, she converted to Christianity at one point in her life because she couldn't explain all the things in the world. But then about 10 years ago, she said she was leaving Christianity. She was leaving Christianity. You, you know, you know what, what's going on here? And she wrote this. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, she's a writer, she uses big words, deservedly infamous group. I refuse to be anti-gay. I refuse to be anti-feminist. I refuse to be anti-artificial birth control. I refuse to be anti-democrat. I refuse to be anti-secular humanism. I refuse to be anti-science. I refuse to be anti-life. In the name of Christ, I quit Christianity and being Christian, amen, is what she wrote. Now, why in the world would she say that? And how does it relate to our text? And I think it's this. Many of us, have boiled down and thought that the good news of Christianity wasn't news at all, but it was just a way to be moral. When we simmer down Christianity, a lot of us have treated it to just be a way to be moral, a way to be good. But that isn't the way it was meant to be. It, was, it is good news. You see, a lot of us, the way we do it, even if we do receive the good news, we receive the gospel, we receive Jesus into our hearts, and we love Jesus, and he's wonderful, what then happens is this poison is still kind of in there, isn't it? These little habits, the default mode of my heart is this, right? We have some insecurity, something comes up, and what do I need to do? I need to prove myself, I think I need to prove myself before God. And so I become even more religious or more moral. And it's based on this little insecurity. I'm not secure in my standing with God, and so I start to be more moral. And a lot of us then says, you know what it means? I want, it. I want you to love God. Your standing in Christianity is how much you love God. No. That is not it, because you cannot muster yourself and grit your teeth down hard enough to say, ooh, look at me, I can really love God. You know, that isn't it. The story of Christianity is the story of the prodigal son. It is God looking far off and seeing you and running after you. It is not how much you love God, but it's about how much God has loved you in the person of Jesus Christ. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. And so... We find Jesus appealing, but yet then we look at his people, look at his church, we look at the person in the mirror, and we realize at times, I'm just a moralist. Making everyone else have to perform and conform to my standard of living in order to get in. You see, we often see people, they, they've, we've, and, and you and I, we see ourselves, we've, and we realize that we've just defaulted to being moral over to being, from being saved, from being a child of God. You know, but the good news of Jesus Christ is that it actually changes us. So Jesus tells this parable to a, to a real particular audience. It is a mixed audience. And it says this in, in the beginning of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, so imagine some tax collectors and sinners, okay? Yeah, use your imagination. You can imagine what they look like, right? Imagine them. 
boom, they're there. And then we have these scribes and Pharisees, okay? They were probably wearing academic robes or, you know, prayer beads and different things like that. And they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He receives sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus then starts telling the series of parables. So, in his story, there are two types of people. There are two types of people. And it will show for us that there are two ways of being lost. There's two ways of being a non-Christian. There's the way of self-actualization. I can be autonomous. I can do it myself. I don't need any rules or authority. I can be my own person. And then there's the other way of being lost, and that is moral rigidity. I'm a good person. I am awesome. God must approve of me, is the way we think. And I would generally say, I will generally say that most people in Colorado Springs are like the older brother in our story. We're always keeping up. We're always presenting ourselves as high-functioning. We're always telling other, each other about how busy we are, how much we're doing, how much is on our plate, how much we can achieve so that everyone always looks at us and doesn't believe that we're lazy. We're always kind of self-righteously, though, looking at our, down our noses at others, you know, and, and we build our approval, we build our self-righteousness on where I send my kids to school. Well, I send my kids to school X, and I can't believe they send their school to that little, little Philistine school over there. You know? Or maybe it's always, we're, we're people who are always competent. You know, you ask me a question, and I am tempted to give you an answer even if I don't know it, in order that I appear competent at all times. Okay? That's wrong. Uh, maybe it's always being right. You're the, well, actually, person, after someone says something absurd, you got to correct them immediately. Maybe you're the person who knows all the theology. You know, you know everything. You have a lot of theological books. Maybe you're the person always serving at the local agencies, or you're the person only using organic products, or you're the person who would never dare shop at Walmart. You know, and what Jesus illustrates for us is this, that there are two ways of being lost. There's only one way of being saved. And so the first way is this way of the younger brother, the way of the younger brother. This is the way of self-discovery. Look at what the younger brother does. He asks his father for the portion of his uh, property. It says this, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided, this is the father, his property between them. When it says property, the word actually means life or livelihood. His very person, he divided it. And it says, give me the share of your life that is coming to me. So he asked for it. Um, and, and what this is, is as the younger brother, he would have gotten a third of the property. There would have been two-thirds for the older brother. And so he was getting a third of it. And he would have then left with much shame because what he had just asked his father was, uh, Father, you haven't kicked the bucket fast enough for me. Is there any way you could just like make like you're dead and uh, give me my share of the property now so I can enjoy it? Anyway, anyway, you could work that one out, pops. 
That's basically what he said. He's like, go ahead and die so that I can have my share of the property. And then he journeys into a far country. He goes far away. Uh, if you are a modern Israelite, you would have understand, hey, we're kind of like in exile right now. We're a bunch, bunch of pagans. So they're starting to find themselves, hopefully in the story, identifying with this younger brother in some way. So they journey into a far country. It's as if he was in exile. He goes there, he squanders all his living, it says. It doesn't give you the details of how he squandered his living necessarily. Notice that the older brother, it says reckless living, right? And then notice that it is the older brother who points out like, it was prostitutes. It's like, let me give you this detail, dad, check this. But anyway, so the younger brother goes out, reckless living, loses all his money, spends everything he has, and there's a severe famine, so the economy crashes, and he's in this country, and he began to be in need. So he hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country, right? And so you're a good, self-respecting Israelite man. You're a good Jew. He goes out there, and imagine his name is Shlomo, and Shlomo gets hired by a man who herds pigs, Pigs are unclean. To work with pigs would make you ceremonially unclean. It's terrible. So Jesus is telling this story like he was on the bottom. It couldn't get any worse. Not only that, he was so hungry he wanted to feed himself with pig food. And in essence, he's saying he got so low, so down to the bottom, so ashamed that he's like, I will eat pig food. I'm lower than pigs. What, we, what they believe is unclean. That's how low he got. And so then he comes to his senses and says, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to concoct this plan. I'm going to go back to my father, and I will tell him that I am sorry, and then I will become one of his hired workers, no longer a child of his, and I will work off everything that I owe him. I'll work it off. I'll pay it back. And that's the way many of us believe that that we can do it. And that isn't the story. We believe that we can come to the Father and work it off. It'll be okay. I can make it right. Notice that it says, I've sinned against you and against heaven. And he tells these first two lines. And then the Father stops him before he gets into his well-rehearsed story. And it says, you see, notice, notice the son says this. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, it was an interjection, stops his story and says, no, you are my child and you will continue to be my child. You will be restored to being my child. He stops him. Most of us, though, when we go our own way, this way of self-discovery, sound a lot more like Aldous Huxley in a book called Ends and Means. He's like, oh my gosh, now he's going into philosophy. What a weirdo. So for myself, he writes, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. See, he also boiled down Christianity to morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, instead of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. 
we would deny that the world uh, had any meaning whatsoever. If the world didn't have meaning, if God didn't exist, then you were free to do whatever you wanted. But why did they decide that? was because they wanted to do whatever they wanted. They decided that the world had to be meaningless in order that I could be free to do whatever I wanted. That's what they were saying. And at times in our heart, maybe we wish that there wasn't that happening. There wasn't some kind of moral order. But we can't escape it. Notice the young man, the younger brother, gets on the end And he says, there's got to be something better than this. You can't live this way, he says. You're living on the bottom. The other brother, the older brother. The older brother, he's the one who stayed at home. If you would have known about exile, the Israelites or the Judah was taken out into the world. And anyone who stayed would have been the Samaritans. Those would have been the terrible people, the bad people, when, whenever the exile ended and they came back home. Okay? And so Samaritans were the ones who stayed. They were there forever. But then Jesus does this on purpose to turn the story on its head and to scandalize his, his listeners. What he is saying here is that you scribes and Pharisees, The ones who appear to have it all together, you are just like a bunch of Samaritans impeding the coming of God's glory, the coming of the kingdom. The coming of the kingdom is God eating with sinners and tax collectors, those whom we regard on the bottom, those whom when we look in the mirror, we realize we resemble a sinner more than anything else. And Jesus looks upon you and says, I love you. I got you. And so older brothers, he ended up standing outside the party. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. And then he says, don't you get it, dad. Notice that he's correcting the father. He says, um, he says this, He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, or like, check it, see, yo, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours comes home and he was devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? He's like, you got it wrong, dad. You got it wrong. And every moralist is saying to about whenever, whenever we see a, a person uh, be received by God, be loved by God, even when they are immoral, every moralist is saying, what the heck? What's wrong with this picture? Every moralist says that. He says he never disobeyed, therefore God, you owe me. The thing is, is he is quick to exclude his younger brother in order to justify himself. He is quick to condemn his younger brother, that little sinner, in order to justify himself. Because I think he was insecure and unsure where he stood with God, with the Father. 
And the Father is saying, all I have is yours. All I have is yours. Notice the Father even comes out to him while he's there. It's painful. But we do the same thing. We're quick to exclude or condemn others in order to justify ourselves. We say, those sinners over there. That person, he's gay. That person is a Democrat. That person's a Republican. That person's an evangelical. That person's a liberal mainliner. You know, those people, those sinners, I've got it together. And what we're doing is we're just trying to build the case so that I'm approved before God. But that isn't the way it works, is it? Who in the world can build a resume good enough for God to approve of them? No one. And so we see two ways of being lost. Two ways of being lost. The gospel means that Jesus came not only to save us from our sins, but he also came to save us from our good works. Jesus came not only to save sinners, but to save the moralist. Uh, In the play and movie Amadeus, there is another composer named Salieri. And Salieri, in the beginning of this movie, I watched the movie, not the play, because I'm simple. Uh, he He makes this promise to God to be an upright, moral person. And he says, God, if you would allow me to be an awesome composer, a great composer, and people would love me, then, oh, I will, I will be the most moral person you've ever known. I'll do everything you ever, I will be chaste, I will live this awesome life. And then comes in this little twerp of a kid named Mozart. And turns out Mozart is very talented and he becomes the greatest composer of all time, even in his age, and it was awesome. And he was living this crazy licentious lifestyle. So Salieri is like, what gives? I'm doing everything. And so in the end, Salieri, just like the older brother, says, look, God, I've done it all right. And he says, says, you and I are now enemies. And that's what the older brother had done. He made himself an enemy of the one person that, would, that gives him everything. The older brother had become Miss Havisham in, her, in his bitterness. Miss Havisham in great expectations uh, was so bitter about being thwarted at the altar and being made a fool that her entire house was locked in suspended animation. Cobwebs everywhere and everything and all the clocks were, held, were left at the time that she was jilted on the altar. So everything there was in suspended animation. She still wore her wedding dress and she wanted to get back at people and that bitterness made her want to get back and use this one boy and mess up his entire life. And when she saw that he was actually a good person, fire breaks out in her house and she's consumed. Moralism will consume us. It'll make us bitter. It'll look at the world and look at God and say, you are unfair. What have you been doing? So there's only one way to be saved. Because morality is a poor cover-up for our sin. 
See, sin isn't just breaking the rules. No, sin is taking the place of God. And apart from God, we are just living the lie in the garden that we can be good without him. So the way of moralism, the way of the older brother, and the way of the younger brother are both two ways of being lost, of living apart from God. So there's only one way to be saved. Notice that the father... It doesn't say that he was just going about his business, but the image is, is almost that he is waiting on the porch, looking off in a far distance, wondering, what is my son doing? And when he catches the little tiniest glimpse of him walking on the road, maybe be able to recognize the way he walks, it says this dignified man, this Lord who had all the wealth in the world, lifts up the robes of his, lifts up the skirts of his robes, and he takes off sprinting on the road. No man like this takes off sprinting to go welcome his sinner of a son. What kind of love is this? He interrupts his son's well-rehearsed speech. He doesn't allow him to cover up his shame with, with a, a well-rehearsed speech and an ability to pay him back. No, he says, oh son, you are mine. Get the best robe, which would have been his robe. He says, get, uh, he gets a ring and puts it on his finger, which would have been the, the ring of the family crest, which means you are my son. You are in this family. And then he brings out the fatted calf and says, bring the entire town, let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he, I've received him back alive. This is great news. And God celebrates over you like that. That's the good news. That's the good news. And so, but how do we get there? How in the world would this have happened? You see, the older brother who would have had two-thirds of the share, in order to receive that other brother in, he would have to divide up his property again. It would come at great cost to him in order to receive this brother back. You see, the older brother, the true better older brother, in this story, should remind us of Jesus who divided up his entire self, his entire life so that we could be received with open arms, so that we could be children of God. And we know that on the cross that Jesus Christ gives everything, his entire life, so that you and I, wayward sinners, broken by the fall, trying to live independently of God. That us wayward moralists, asking everyone to perform, make it ourselves perform, trying to prove our resume, we know on the cross, because he was divided up, we have a portion in God's kingdom. And how do we get this? Because as the old hymn says, the only fitness he requires is for you to feel your need of him. Do you come with empty hands to receive the good news that Jesus Christ 
that Jesus Christ is the one who's come to welcome those who are wayward, those who are lost, and that he is the one who comes out to receive the older brothers. And you can confess and say, I don't need to be perfect because Jesus' resume for me stands as my vindication in the world. That should give you freedom. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, you give lavishly. You are the true prodigal that spends and gives away his entire life for sinners, for those who people, for, for those who don't need it or don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Lord, now as we come to the table, help us to remember that we come with empty hands, that we have nothing to approach you with, that this story of the prodigal son is really a story about your prodigal, prodigious love that gives away all of himself to receive those who are wayward, those who are lost, those who are trying to make it on our own. By either by living wayward lives or those living moralistic lives. You welcome both at your table. You welcome Republican and Democrat. You welcome sinner and saint. You welcome gay and straight. You welcome them to your table because it is in Jesus Christ that we are approved. We are justified. Lord, Help us. Help us to get that at the heart and to receive it. In Christ's name, amen.